Thanks for having me. It's awesome to be here. Um, thanks to Lizzie for organizing. Thanks to the Technology Club. Um, Darden is an awesome resource for the world as a whole, but particularly for Charlottesville. And I am, one of my agenda items and messages here today is how places like Charlottesville and college towns in general are kind of changing uh, the world, changing themselves. Uh, we're particularly bullish on Charlottesville. If there's folks in the back, there's still seats up here. I'm super friendly, hopefully. Um, and, and how we believe in the next 30 to 50 years, college towns um, and kind of centers of academic excellence like it are going to be kind of fundamental in how the economy moves forward in ways that the big urban centers uh, are going to struggle to do that. And certainly the suburban centers are, you know, that 50 years post-World War II, probably till 10 years ago, of every, everything moving to the suburbs has now largely reversed and a lot of things are moving back into urban centers and into college towns like Charlottesville. So I'm gonna spend the first couple minutes uh, just giving you my life story. I really don't like to talk about myself so much, but um, I was asked to, so I will. Um, and, and it's mainly meant to, to tell you my story, and hopefully uh, you guys can glean some insight from it, some learning, and then talk about some things that I've learned along the way that I wish I'd have known uh, kind of when I was, was, was going through school and things that have kind of really shaped how we've tried to build Willow Tree as a company. So, <laughs> this, is, this is a problem. <laughs> I'm the big kid there. That's my little brother, Florian. So, this would be a problem growing up anywhere in the world. It would even be a problem in Bavaria if your parents dressed you like this. It was a particularly big problem in Front Royal, Virginia. <laughs> um, so I ended up without lunch money a lot of days at school. Um, for some reason in the American kind of socio world, it's the one group that you can still in good conscience make fun of is German kids. Um, so what that kind of got me to as a, as a, as a kid is I was often a little bit on the outside looking in, and it made me an observer of how society works, how people relate to each other, um, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, that has, and I'm going to return to this theme, is, is, has been kind of a big passion in my life. Like, really, how do people relate to each other? How do they best work together? Why are they nice to some people and not nice to other people? Um, and, and kind of what impact does that have on how you build a company, which is ultimately a culture and ultimately an aggregation of individuals. Um, the second thing I got really into, my parents came over from Germany in the 60s. My dad was a physicist, um, worked for the US Department of Defense. Um, I was always, we were, grew up in a very technologically driven household. So kind of technology and society and, and societal relationships were kind of things that interested me as a kid. Um, that kid then went to Penn, and, and the story there is pretty funny. The reason I ended up at Penn is because my dad told me, um, you can go to any school you want, but the only things you can study are physics or engineering. <laughs> and I got into various engineering schools, but Penn had a program that combined uh, engineering and an undergrad degree in business from Wharton, 
And so I was like, that kind of felt like a little bit, I was like, Dad, I'm studying engineering. But really, I was going to go to study business. And so it kind of got me uh, where I wanted to go. Then I went to AT Kearney, uh, management consulting for a few years. And for whoever's worked in management consulting, if you want to one day run a business, I don't think there's a better way over a short period of time to learn um, more uh, then I mean, it's, it's, it's what you're exposed to in a short period of time is unimaginable. I was 23 years old. I was presenting myself lead presentations to Fred Smith, the CEO of Federal Express. Um, those, those experiences are invaluable. But um, there's a problem with management consulting, and that is that you're a consultant. Um, and the, 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 the problem is that you never have, I'm sure I'm insulting a bunch of people in this room right now. Um, the, the problem is that you never get actual, you never get your hands on the wheel, right? You come up with suggestions, ideas, most of the time. They get handed off, sometimes implemented, sometimes not. Um, and I found that to be frustrating. So I left um, to join, uh, sorry, whoops. I left to join AOL in 1996. Um, which at the time, for those of you guys who remember, was kind of like joining Google. It's a combination of Google and Facebook and Microsoft today. It was kind of the center of the universe for all things digital for about three years until we did the Time Warner deal, and then it wasn't. Um, but in one of, kind of, one of the big mistakes of my life, I left AOL after nine months because uh, one of the... Uh, I had two principles on the pro my first project at, at uh, AT Kearney. One is named Johan Oreck, who is now the CEO of AT Kearney, who was a great mentor to me, and I got super, super lucky working with him. Um, the other went on to co-found a company called ATP, which I'm sure you guys have heard of. No one's heard of. Um, it's, it was called Agricultural Technology Partners. It was a biotech, uh, agricultural biotech-focused uh, venture capital firm that I worked at for um, about a year. Um, and f for many of us, who, especially if you're interested in technology and you're interested in business, venture capital has this romantic allure as the place you want to be. It's the center of the universe. It's where all the investments happen. I figured out that I was really, really bad at the stuff that makes a good venture capitalist, right? And what are those things? Um, I think it's some things around split-second judgments, feeling judgments around um, a very specific technology and a very specific person when you are engulfed in pitches, right? And so we would get... 50 pitches a month of great agricultural biotech ideas. And I was like, they all sound pretty freaking good to me. Um, that sounds like a pretty smart guy. He's been a professor at Carnegie Mellon for 15 years and seems like knows what he's doing. Technology, he's got a patent on it. I mean, that's something. Um, and that just, that, not having that kind of ability to filter stuff very quickly made me not very good at, at, at VC. Luckily, I recognized that, right? I think these days you call it pivot, but back then we just called it reversing, <laughs> reversing course, unscrewing yourself. Um, so I went back to AOL, 
which was great because I've spent six more years there. The downside was when I started AOL the first time, I had stock options at $8. A year later, they were at $112. So I paid a, a financially significant price uh, for that decision. But then I was at AOL for six years, had an amazing time, um, ended up running AOL's local businesses. And um, I was asked at lunch today, well, how did, you how did you become an entrepreneur? There's lots of different paths to becoming an entrepreneur. For me, it was I was at a big company. I saw an opportunity that that company wasn't pursuing. I pitched it internally. It got rejected. And I left to pursue that idea. So specifically what happened is uh, we ran, uh, my group ran AOL Local, the biggest revenue driver of which was the AOL Yellow Pages. Um, yellow Pages are uh, paper documents that we used to use to find businesses. Um, and 20 years ago, there was more money spent in, in, print, in print Yellow Pages advertising in the United States than in all newspaper and magazine advertising combined. It was a huge business because every time you needed anything locally, you went to the Yellow Pages. So we had the AOL yellow pages. So all of a sudden, plumber, you could look for plumbers in Washington, D.C. on AOL. Pretty cool. We would call. We had a sales force of about 300 people, mainly telemarketers, who would call up the plumber and say, hey, Mr. Plumber, guess what? People are looking for plumbers on AOL. You should buy an ad. The problem was, 2002, 2003, AOL started collapsing. So no one wanted to buy ads on AOL. Our traffic was down. So we had the idea, said, well, all our tra where's our traffic going? It's going to Google and it's going to Yahoo, right? So what we should do is partner with Google and Yahoo and create one joint venture called the Internet Yellow Pages that we all point our traffic to and try to generate, create a whole new business that way as a joint venture, similar model. We went out to, to Google, Yahoo. They were actually all on board because none of them had, had local ad sales teams at the time, right? And so how did... You know, to buy an ad on Google, which is still the way you buy an ad on Google, you had to create an account, go in, figure out what keyword you wanted, bid on a keyword, et cetera. Plumbers weren't doing that. Plumbers still don't do that today. So we said, well, we'll do it on their behalf, and we'll kind of create this business. Anyway, that idea got lots of traction with Yahoo and Google, got zero traction within AOL for all sorts of reasons. But we left, um, my boss and I, to start a company uh, called Leads.com, which was based in Northern Virginia. Um, and it was a very simple business. We hired a bunch of telemarketers, mainly down in southwest Virginia near the Kentucky border, um, who would call up and say, Mr. Plumber, you've been on the print yellow pages for 100 years. Everyone's using Google, Yahoo, and AOL to find you. We'll help you get on, we'll help you get on all those services. All you have to do is give us your credit card number, right? <laughs> and that was an awesome business. And we started in 2003. We sold it in 2006. Um, and about that time, um, we sold it to a company called Web.com, which you can uh, still runs ads on CNBC. They're one of the three or four main purveyors of URLs and of small business websites in the country. And it was a very natural upsell for them to now hey, say, hey, you've just bought a URL from us. Charlottesvilleplumbing.com. You've built a website. It's awesome. Now you've got to buy ads for it. So it, it was a great deal for them. It was a great deal for us. We got acquired right before the IPO. I moved to Charlottesville in 05 because my wife uh, matched at the University of Virginia to do her, her residency. 
which was in surgery, which is seven years of residency. So we were kind of down here, and I was commuting to Northern Virginia. I was then commuting. This company, web.com, is located in Jacksonville, Florida. Nothing against Jacksonville, but it's not the same as Charlottesville. Um, so I left in 08, 09, and was uh, trying to figure out what to do. And we owned a, a vacation house up in Rhode Island, and I was really bummed out by HomeAway and kind of how they approached it. So I started a company called Rental Spot. Anyone ever heard of Rental Spot? No. <laughs> no one's heard of Rental Spot. Total flop. It's still around. If you want to Google it or type it in and look for a vacation house, be delighted if you do. You probably take our traffic. We get about 400 visitors a month, up to 401, 402. So it'd be <laughs> meaningful traffic if everyone in here decided to do it. Um, but it was a total flop. My idea was. Craigslist was and still is super powerful in, in online classifieds. And if you looked at the history of internet classifieds, every vertical, whether it's you know, uh, matchmaking, autos, et cetera, et cetera, has paid services where you have to pay to list, like match.com. And then there's a bunch of free, free to list versions, like Tinder these days in, in that space. And so the idea was, well, let's create the Craigslist for va vacation home rentals, right? It'll be free to list, and it'll be kind of free to find. And then if we get enough traffic, we'll sell some ads. And these days, it's so cheap to build a website and launch and deploy it that we can make a lot of money. It had an awesome Excel model. Um, but I really screwed up in kind of a significant way, which was that unlike some markets, uh, specifically you know, matchmaking is a very good example, where the people who are viewing the ads are also the people who are submitting the ads. Here you've got two different audiences, right? Who's going to go to your site and look for vacation homes if you don't have any listed? And who's going to list them if you don't have any sites, even if it's free, right? So the barrier to entry is much larger because you've got to build this critical mass on both sides kind of out of the gate. The reason it's still around, actually, is because at our next company, Willow Tree, um, we now use it as a testing bed and experimental bed for kind of new technologies, et cetera, et cetera. So it actually has, it does have 400 users a month, about. But it has enough traffic so that we can actually test things and, and, and uh, kind of learn about new techniques and technologies without having to try them out always on our clients, which clients tend not to like as much. Um, in 2009, um, I was here in Charlottesville, and I got pitched by a guy named Michael Pritchard. Uh, on being an angel investor in his business, uh, which was called, Will well, it was going to be a spinoff of his business called Dioji, which was the first ticketing app um, ever on the iPhone. So it's a good trivia, piece of trivia that you can use on someone at a cocktail party. In what city was the first ticketing app for the iPhone ever built? Charlottesville, Virginia. Um, and all the, if you went downtown, you could buy tickets to the Paramount, to the Jefferson, et cetera, et cetera on this app, and he was looking for investors. And he was going to try to build the next big ticketing play. I told him I thought that was not a great idea um, for all sorts of reasons. But the biggest was Ticketmaster is never going to let you in the big venues. And small venue, And working with small venues is a complete cluster. right? They have no money um, to really market. They're, each one has a different system. So I wasn't super interested in that. But I asked him, I was like, Michael, so you're working on this thing. You've got this awesome app. 
are you kind of independently wealthy, or how do you eat like while you're working on this stuff? He's like, oh, it's easy. I just put up a couple ads on Google, say app developer for hire, and I get like a million phone calls, and I have to shut it off right away because all these people are calling me. I'm like, whoa, this is 2009. Like the world is on fire. I haven't heard of a single person mention that they've got a business where there's more demand than supply. Let's talk about that. And so, long story short, that started a series of conversations that had me joined Willow Tree in early 2010. It ended up being, it was a company of three folks at the time. Um, and what we did was grow that into um, a mobile product agency, right? And that's what we are today. And what does that mean? That means building products on behalf of clients. If you want to work in tech, right, there's really two avenues. You can either build your own products, like everyone from Google, Facebook, et cetera, uh, Snapchat, whatever, that you're trying to get to the, to the end user. Or you can help other companies in a consulting approach do the same thing, right? And so the opportunity that we saw, we said, well, look, Charlottesville, Virginia, even if we have the next Snapchat idea, we can't build Snapchat here, right? Because there's no way we can walk down the street, have coffee with someone, and get five million bucks, highly unlikely. And even if we did, we can't do what a Snapchat then has to do, which is hire 300 people in six months to kind of get off the ground, or what Facebook hired, I think, 5,000 people in their first two years. It's not possible here, right? We can hire 30 people, maybe, maybe. So it, it's not, it doesn't work here, right? And we were both in Charlottesville because my wife was here and doing her residency and she wasn't gonna stop that. So I was like, well, what can we do? So we decided, all right, we can do a services business. And that actually could work really well here. And I'll go into why it happens to work really well. But we've been able to grow that into kind of one of the premier um, mobile product agencies, now digital product agencies in the world because of being able to be in a place like Charlottesville and the advantages that it offers us. And so end of 2010, we had about seven employees. Um, we are scraping at about 200 employees right now. Um, it's been a crazy, crazy ride. Um, we've grown 40 to 50% a year. Start three people and grow 40 to 50% a year. After a while, you're pretty big. Um, it's getting pretty freaking scary because growing 50% when you've got 20 employees is way different than what we're trying to do this coming year, which is grow from 200 to 300 employees. Um, why do we exist? Kind of where do we fit in? And this is, I think, important to every one of you throughout your professional lives is kind of where kind of innovation, how does innovation get done, right? Where does it come from? Whether it's in a small company or in a big company, it really is a, is a confluence of three main disciplines, right? One is design, one is software development or development technology, if, if it's not software related, and the third is strategy, right? And historically, those have been kind of three classes of disciplines, right? You've got guys like McKinsey who are experts in the strategy piece, you've got IDOs and folks like that who are the design, the design folks, and then you've got cognizance of the world who are the development folks. And then some, there have been agencies that have tried to bridge two out of the three, but doing all three um, is a really new thing. And that is where our opportunity lies because there's just no, that's, that's white space. There's no competition right now, uh, historically speaking. Everyone's trying to move in there. 
Uh, McKinsey just six months ago bought a design agency because everyone sees this happening. They don't have a development agency yet. Um, but we kind of started there, like in the, in the confluence of those three um, kind of skill sets. And so the second thing is we decided that how do you do this best and kind of we really studied what made Apple, Apple. And everything you see on this list, except for the college town piece, are things that Apple pioneered, right? Steve Jobs' great insight was shrink the teams. Like the, his, 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 you know, the original Mac computer was a team of five or six people designed and built the first prototype. If you look at um, the iPod, that, I mean, there's a big debate now amongst three people as to who really was the leader of that three-person team, but it was a three-person team nonetheless who figured out the iPod, which changed the world probably more than any other device, even more than the iPhone, which was an add-on to the iPod. Um, so, and, and that's counter, counter trend, right? We have, we just did a big project for a multinational um, financial services company and they had a team of about 22 folks on a project. We each had about the same amount of work to do. They were on the back end, we were on the front end. Um, their team was in New York, Arizona, and two locations in India. Our team of five people was in Charlottesville, Virginia, and we ran laps around what they were able to do with a much larger and much more expensive team because our team was smaller and better. It's kind of the whole SEAL team approach. It is whatever you want to call it. But that's, that's a major trend, and the implications are huge because the implications mean that the battle for talent, for that high-end talent, is bigger than and is more important than it's ever been before. Right? That is, to me, what's going on in the world right now is the premium talent is scarce and worth more than it ever has been before because that talent can do more um, than it ever has been able to do. So we're mobile-focused, again, genetically, which obviously the big agencies aren't. We're onshore and co-located. Every project we do is in the same room. We are fundamentally against um, this whole work at home. You know, you, you talk to PwC Deloitte, and I spent a lot of time talking with some of the folks there. They, they are trying to reduce real estate costs, do more work from home, distributed teams. We are exactly counter that, because we believe that, that any creative enterprise is ultimately social, right? And that's why. We're all here in this room, right? I don't think there's going to be a world in 50 years where everyone's going to get their Darden degree from a computer working from home. There's, there's a fundamental value to seeing each other, interacting, and that's just part of the human condition. And I think if you ignore that, you do so at your peril. Um, we have a DRI for every project. That's a term that we stole from Apple. Wherever you go in life, I would steal it as well. It stands for directly responsible individual. That means there's one human being in charge of everything that gets done down to we have kegs every Friday. There's one person in charge of the kegs that Friday, and everyone sure as crap knows who that person is because everyone's <laughs> got an idea on what keg we're going to get, but we had to do that because there was too much debate. So we're like, we're putting one person in charge. Um, the college town advantage is a big deal because our costs are so much lower, right? So I'll just share kind of we, the average starting salary this year for computer science, um, degree folks who are coming to Willow Tree is $74,000, $75,000. Awesome. Living in Charlottesville, Virginia, it's a great deal. Those same folks tend to have offers from Facebook, Google, et cetera, for between one hundred and twenty dollars and $130,000. But when they do the math, 
they realize that they can live in Charlottesville and have more in their pocket at the end of every month at 75 than they will at 120 or 130 in San Francisco or New York. So it is a huge cost advantage for us. Real estate's about a third of the cost, et cetera, et cetera. So we are this college town, you know, and that and, and, and Charlottesville is a place where people want to live, you know. 20, 30 years ago, Charlottesville had all the great stuff associated with the university and a bunch of people playing golf at Farmington. That was kind of Charlottesville. You came here to retire. If you were a UVA grad, you're like, my dream is to come back and retire in Charlottesville. Now you can actually live and work here, and we're drawing people. Tons of non-UVA people come in here as well, and the place is exploding. And it's not just Charlottesville. Pittsburgh's the same way. Madison, Wisconsin, Boulder, Colorado, all those kind of places. And we're independent. And independent is important. Um, our head of sales has his favorite line is, we don't work for our shareholders, we don't work for our owners, we work for our clients, right? Which is a pitch that really tends to work, but it's true because we don't have quarterly numbers um, that we're responsible for. We can think for the long term, and there's a lot of value in that. Um, so what did I, you know, that's kind of where we are right now. What did I learn? So one is know thyself, right? I, I, learned, I, I read this in fifth grade. I had no idea what it really meant other than I knew it was the answer to what did Socrates say. Um, but it's really, really, really important um, that you know what you're good at and you know what you're not good at and focus on the stuff that you're good at. If you read books like Good to Great, which I think was one of the first books that really kind of looked at the research and, and, and focused on this was great companies create a culture where everyone's focused on what they're best at and not what a lot of HR departments do, give everyone a list of stuff to work on, right? Because that means you're focused on trying to get better at stuff you suck at. It's a lot, you, you know, our society rewards people who are absolutely best in class. And, and to do that, you've got to focus on what you're really good at. And then surround yourself with people who are great at the things you're not great at. When Willow Tree started, I was partners with Michael Pritchard. I would have never been able to do it on my own because I can't interview developers. It's the hardest thing in the world. Developers are the worst interviewers. A great developer is a terrible interviewer. A, great, a developer who's a great interviewer, run, run for the hills. That's my advice. Because anyone who wants to spend their time looking at a screen and not interacting with other humans is going to be bad in an interview situation. Um, but he knew how to do it, and he knew how to manage, manage developers, which I did not know. Now we've got a whole ecosystem set up at the company to do that. But I, I could have never done it on my own. Secondly, business is driven by sales. So that is the, if you talk to any successful entrepreneur, most, 95%, they will tell you that they learned how to sell at a young age. Now, if you want to be an entrepreneur and, you don't, and you're not confident that you can be a good salesperson, partner with a salesperson or, or hire a great salesperson. But sales is everything. The idea is much less important than your ability to sell it. Um, and that kind of goes back to what, you know, when we started Willow Tree, I went out on the road and I talked to all the old kind of clients I had from my AOL days, et cetera, I was able to pitch them and get them into, um, you know, on as early clients. Now, sales, prior to sales, you have to have marketing branding, right? And so the great thing about, you know, and, and marketing gets poo-pooed the marketing department gets poo-pooed in every company. It probably gets poo-pooed at business school. Like, you know, it's marketing. Like, how hard can it be? Um, it is everything, right? Because marketing creates the leads that the salespeople can sell. And these days, one of the great equalizers is 
we can get the same leads that any giant company can get if we're promoting ourselves properly on Google, if we're getting enough attention to the press, people show up on our, if our website's good enough, then we get leads. In the last two weeks, we had the following, we had the Discovery Network fill out a form on our website, say, hey, we need an app. We had AMC fill out a form on our website that they need apps for three new shows, right? And that's, then it goes to the salespeople, and the salespeople get commissions and talk about how great they are. But, but it's really about how good the leads are. Like, if you go back to Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, it's about the good leads. Um, and so never underestimate the power of marketing, especially if you're starting a, a company. Make the trend your friend, right? And I've been really lucky in that I joined AOL in 96, well, then left, 97. Um, then we got into the online search world in the mid-2000s, and then we got on the mobile world in 2009, 2010. I would spend a lot of time thinking about what do you think the macro trends are at any point in your career, because that's where you want to be. Because then you can screw up a whole bunch, and there's so much tailwind that you'll be OK. Whereas if you're in a declining, cyclically declining business, you, you, you know, everything you get is at the expense of someone else. You have to battle it out for every deal. You have to battle it out for every dollar. Here, there's just money flowing in, right? And, that, and it's, it's a lot easier to kind of to get that. So what are the big trends, right? I mainly put this up because I love Andreessen's head. But, <laughs> but, but this is the macro trend that all of us are going to be dealing with for the next five or 10 years, is that everything we do is software infused, right? Pepsi, one of our big clients, used to have a very simple business. Put ads on TV to get people to drink sugar water, make the sugar water, get the sugar water to the top of the shelf. Now, all those activities are massively digitally infused, from how do we advertise to millennials, to we built them, for example, an apps for their um, technicians out in the field where they're managing their entire um, repair cycles of, uh, of, all the, of all the machines out there using iPads. So that's how you know, all, these, all the machines are going to be connected. They're going to automatically be reporting when um, they need to be refilled. And so this whole battleground, you know, when we think about our clients, Pepsi's battleground with Coke is mainly around technology right now. They can both buy ads for the same cost. They both buy sugar at the same cost. They, they've locked up all the, store, you know, all the storefronts and all the shelf space. That's kind of done. The only delta right now where they're really battling it out is technology. And that's where they have to come to guys like, we're the arms merchants of that war, is kind of how we look at ourselves. Um, and so, and it's not just my opinion, right? This is, a, this is from uh, CA Technologies, which is another big consultancy. But they basically said, you know, here's the question in case you can't read. To what extent do you agree that the shift to a software-driven enterprise will be a critical driver of competitive advantage? This was asked to Fortune 500 companies. They say right now, 43% strongly agree. 80% of CEOs say that over the next three years, that's going to drive their business. That is the number one boardroom topic. How do we compete in technology versus, our com versus everybody else? And so, you know, Talking about tailwinds, mobile has gone from zero. I mean, before 2011, there was no mobile development. It's a $32 billion industry created out of nowhere uh, in about five years. And that's, again, kind of going to uh, what, you know, be, be in a business that has a lot of tailwinds. 
This is to me, if you can't read this, um, I apologize, but, but this is kind of why we're all here in, in Charlottesville, is the, 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 we create in the United States about 52,000 computer science grads a year. The industry needs about 123,000. This is um, analysis, I think, from, uh, this is the same study from CA Technologies. So what is that? So that means 70, we're, we're short 70,000 computer scientists a year in the US. So only one of two things happens. Either that work goes overseas, or that work doesn't get done, right? But however you cut it, if you own that asset, you've got a very, very scarce resource. So that's kind of how we think about the world. How do we, how do we get more of that asset? Now, it's a hindrance says that we can't grow as fast as our clients would like us to grow, but it's a huge opportunity for us because as long as we are relatively growing faster than our competitors, we're getting more of this asset um, kind of mind share. Um, I get asked a lot kind of what's next, right? You're, you're in mobile, mobile's cool, mobile kind of is what it is. Everyone knows what mobile is. How do you ensure that you don't get wiped out like everyone else? So we spend a lot of time thinking about that. We don't think virtual reality is the big next thing. We're not convinced that augmented reality is the next big thing. There will be things that are interesting in that space. We do think AI and machine learning are the next big, big thing. And we ultimately believe the driver of that is voice, right? And so all you need to really know in this in kind of thinking about this is typing is something we invented to interface with machines because it was really the only way to do it, right? And the average person types at 50 words a minute. You guys might type at 70. Teenagers might type at 80. But that's kind of where you cap out. We speak at 150 words a minute, right? So we can communicate via the spoken word at two to three times the rate that we can type. We read at 250 to 300 words a minute, right? So it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out where all this is going. We're going to be speaking to machines, and we're going to be getting visual, graphical response. And so, for example, how, how does this manifest itself? We're working on some projects right now with one of our big clients, Regal Cinemas, where the use case is you walk downstairs in the morning, you say, Alexa, what movies are playing tonight? Do you then want to listen to Alexa tell you what movies are playing and the showtimes? Hell no. What you want is you want your phone to beep and a screen to show up to show you. And then you say, Alexa, book me two Rogue One tickets at 8 PM. And that's the entire interface to, 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 uh, to get tickets for a movie. That is a completely different experience than it is today. And that is really, really hard to do on all kinds. It, it sounds so simple. It sounds so elegant. Every time I tell that story, everyone's like, no shit. That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> but it's really, really hard to do, right? So that's what we're working on right now. And that's what Google's working on. Um, so the final kind of thing that I wanted to touch on real quick before we go to questions is culture, right? And this goes back to how do we get all these great, brilliant engineers that have offers at Google, Facebook, et cetera, to want to work at Willow Tree or any company that you're at in the future? And the answer is culture, right? And Amy Cuddy, I think, is amazing. If you haven't um, seen her TED Talk or read her book, I would highly recommend it. Um, but her deep insight is, um, and I don't think it's new, but she really articulates it well, is that people are driven by normative influence, not objective influence, meaning that in theory, we have certain values, right? But in practice, the values that we have are driven by whom we interact with every day, 
right? So we all aspire to be great citizens, to work really hard, to not party too hard on the weekends, whatever it is that we're kind of working on ourselves. But what, what primarily drives that is who we surround ourselves with every day, right? And if you can create a culture where everyone is really focused on the client and doing great work, that becomes the culture of the company, right? And it's way more powerful than what people walked in with because they just see it around them every day. So how do you create that, right, is, is what we spend a lot of time, uh, a lot of time on. And this, these, these next couple slides are, we think um, there's a big change going on in kind of how business is viewed and capitalism is viewed. And if you ask the average person in the street, it's particularly complicated now for the election, but if you ask a person in the street, they will have a certain view of what a business person is, right? Um, but I think that's really different from what most businesses are. Most businesses are large organizations of human beings. There are some zero-sum game businesses. If you're a trader on Wall Street and all you do is trade all, all, all the time, yes, it's kind of a zero-sum game. But everybody else is trying to build an organization and build a team and build a team of teams. Right? So it's, it's a very different kind of thing from what is prototypical, prototypically viewed as a business person. And we think it's exactly the opposite. Um, why, are, why are we able to run circles around bigger companies? We think it's because as, when companies get larger, they scale. They've got certain advantages of scale. But at some point, many get, those get overwhelmed by motivation going down the tubes. Right? And so we spend time thinking about how do we keep, how do we, is it possible to have 200 people as motivated as we had 20? Is it possible to have 2,000 people as motivated as we had 200? And those are really, really hard questions to answer. Um, there's a good friend of mine who lectures here, Adrian Kievel, and he did his PhD on behavioral stakeholder theory. You guys may have taken his class. I think it's a first-year class. But he had a huge insight. And, and it was that fairness, um, when, when companies, when people perceive their, or stakeholders, but for, for me, stakeholders in this case is employees, team members. When they perceive their company is fair, they reciprocate. They do more than they otherwise would. And what his research showed is it's a nonlinear function. So the more fair they feel the company is, it creates a disproportionate kind of response, right? And what is fair? Fair means you may offer benefits that no one else offers. You may, as a CEO, know everyone's name and shake their hand. Or you may, in our case, we don't have offices. I sit on the open floor with everyone else. Um, or if someone's sick or had a baby, you may visit them in the hospital, right? Things like that have an incredible impact on kind of how you are perceived and how the company is perceived. And that's what companies start to lose. Now, when you get to 2,000 people, you can't know any, everyone's name, but you can have to figure out other ways to get that same message across. And so what he looked at is commitment. And this was off a huge data set, thousands of employees, hundreds of companies. And commitment is something that's pretty easy to, to measure because you, it's objective because you can figure out how long people stay at a given company, right? You're not asking, it's not a survey, it's a fact. How long are people staying? And the, the top five, salary is number five, right? What makes people, it has to be competitive. I'm not saying 
underpay people and be super nice to them and they'll get the best and they'll stay around. I'm saying pay them competitively, but then on top of that, make sure your values are aligned, right? That was the number one thing, which means they feel their company is doing good things or at least going about business fairly, right? Um, job, what is your job? If you, if you believe your job is important to the org, you are much more likely to stay, whereas if your job feels disrespected within the org, much more likely to leave. Um, and then relations between managers and workers and among workers, and then your work gets noticed. And if you can do those things, um, you, you will kind of completely change how you're able to retain people and attract people. And that's kind of what we spend a lot of time thinking about. So what we did, um, and kind of wherever, I, I would just encourage you to steal from us, kind of, because this has been so powerful and effective for us. We went about two years ago, 18 months ago, when we were about 100 folks, 80 folks, and we said, what are our core values, right? What we did not do is do an executive retreat to figure out what our core values were. <laughs> Instead, what we did is we put it, we plastered the whole company with, what do you think? Everyone, we, we were getting great feedback. Glassdoor had just kind of come out with their first surveys, and we were doing incredibly well. We said, we're doing awesome, but do we know why we're doing awesome? Not really. So why do you think Willow Tree is a great place to work? And so then we had everyone do that for a couple weeks, and then we distilled it into seven things. And these are on our website. It is so critical to how we run the company that every time we interview someone, we have part, one of the core values here is craftsmanship. You've got to actually know what you're doing. But after that, there are six others. We review every employee that comes in, and if they fail one or more of the core values, they're not going to hire them. One of them is optimism, right? So we ask them questions about difficult problems that they've had, et cetera. But we also observe them. Did they say hi to the receptionist? Did they smile? If they didn't do those things, I don't care if they're the greatest developer on the planet. They're not going to work at Willow Tree, right? Because that person's going to blow up a team, or that person's going to blow up a client relationship somewhere down the road. So one is craftsmanship, right, which is obvious. And again, these are all things that the team came up with. And I think that's really important. You can't. You, you as a manager, if you hand this to someone, no, no impact. If people come up with this on their own, very, very powerful, right? The second is flow. So we believe, like for those of you who have read the book Flow, you'll get it. If you haven't, it, is, it was one of the more important books in my life, kind of teaching about kind of how to be satisfied in work and in life. Um, but the core thesis is, People who are, spend more time in a mental state um, of kind of complete concentration are much happier than people who don't, right? It's a state where time flies. And we try to create that. Um, we try to avoid swirl, right? We always laugh. Our clients are creating swirl. Hopefully none of our clients watch this video. Um, our, some of our clients create swirl, and we're trying to create flow, right? Everyone is busy. Nothing is getting done. We've all been there, right? Ownership, people care, right? This is where the, the term DRI comes in. Um, optimism, as I mentioned, right? Um, and, and, it's, and, and this is a soft one. The, uh, the Stockdale paradox is, I think, also out of good to great. If you have, the Stockdale paradox was Admiral Stockdale was in Vietnam. He was a prisoner for a very long time, I think 12 years. Um, he watched people around him die. The whole, like, most of the people that went to the Hanoi Hilton died. And he figured out that they really died for two reasons. It was all mental, he felt. They either died because they set 
goals and said, we'll be out of, here by, out of here by Christmas. And then Christmas came and went. They weren't out of there. And they had a breakdown, couldn't make it. Um, or they just got so depressed that they never even had a goal. And he, his kind of breakthrough was, I don't know how, I don't know when, but we're going to get out of here. And that's kind of the philosophy that you know, we all have tough projects we're on. The, con the concept is, I don't know how, I don't know when, but eventually we'll make it out. And that optimism is contagious. Um, hope you like our pictures. Um, they're all tongue-in-cheek, again, sourced from the team. Uh, but open communication um, is a huge one that the company, everyone said that we believe in. Um, the golden rule, right? Pretty obvious, but again, this is something we test for in every person we bring in. And then partners, right? We genuinely want to help our clients uh, do better because we know that 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 will bring us the next line of business. And these are all very positive things, and this is how we run the business every day. This isn't some BS made up kind of in some book. This is how we run it every day. And what's the result? Is It's the, the lowest churn in the industry. It's 4.6%, which for a software development shop is unheard of, right? We are. Um, 48th right now in great places to work for, re and, then, and that's a fortune um, survey that basically tests how people feel about the company. And that's with companies, you know, that's 48 nationally. That's not 48 in Charlottesville, Virginia. That's Google, Facebook, guys like that. We're number five um, in medium sized businesses in the United States. We have a 4.9 rating on Glassdoor. I only pay a few people to do the ratings, so every, all the other ratings are probably accurate. Um, but look it up. I mean, it, it works, right? And that's kind of my message uh, to everyone is that this stuff works. So everyone talks about kind of what career goals, et cetera, et cetera. And, and one of the things that gets, that gets really hard as you get older, especially into your mid-40s, is balancing your time, right? And that's where I spend a lot of time talking to, about two potential recruits about what it means to live in a place like Charlottesville. It makes, these are all pictures of obviously my family taken in the last week. This was taken yesterday for, for uh, Valentine's Day. Um, but being in a place like Charlottesville allows you to have balance. And it's not just for me, it's for our whole company, right? Because our com the average commute at Willow Tree is eight minutes, right? Compare that to your average city. If the average, I think the average, commute round trip in Washington, D.C. is over two hours right now. That's two hours a day that's just vaporized, right? It's gone. You can't get it back. Um, and so that's why we think being in a place like here, um, obviously it's not the only place on the planet, but being in a place like here lends itself to kind of a fuller experience. And, and what I would challenge everyone, and I never thought about this until I was in my late 30s, is kind of how do you balance, like what, not what career do you want, right? Not gunning for, all right, when I, when I go, I want to make sure the New York Times writes an obit on me. Like, that doesn't matter to me anymore, right? What matters to me is, a, is the balance. And no, one, it, no one's ever going to write about that. But it's kind of what makes life fulfilling every day. And it's hard. It is really hard to balance a career, all the travel associated with that, the kids, also being a good husband, those kind of three things. And that doesn't even account. Like, being a son, being a great friend, all the other stuff you have to worry about, um, speaking at Darden, all the other great things in life. Um, and so, so, but being in a place like Charlottesville, I would just encourage you as you kind of think about what kind of life you want to live, um, is a really awesome place to be. And so I'm a huge 
uh, supporter of this. I, you know, thanks again to Darden for, for bringing in kind of local speakers. When you think of some of the cooler towns in the country, uh, Ann Arbor, Boulder, Cambridge, Palo Alto, they are all born out of a deep, deep, deep relationship between private industry in that town and the university or universities in that town. And Charlottesville and, and UVA are now kind of really for the first time, I think, kind of really building on that. So it's a super exciting time to be here.